And so turn with me to John 17, which by now you know as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, if you didn't already know that. Jesus on the night before He dies, really within hours of the cross, is praying to the Father for us as His disciples. I'm going to read verse 6 all the way down to verse 16, though we're actually going to focus on just three verses in the middle of that. But I want us to hear the whole of this, or not the whole prayer. You can read that at home, but at least this portion. So Father, now we open Your Word. Help us to hear. Help us to believe. Help us to be moved by Your truth to greater trust. Or maybe even a beginning trust as we look to Christ. John 17, verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me. And they have kept Your Word. Now they know that everything that You have given Me is from You. For I have given them the words that You gave Me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from You, and they have believed that You sent Me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. All mine are Yours, and Yours are Mine, and I am glorified in them. And Here's our text for this morning. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to You. Holy Father, keep them in Your name which You have given Me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in Your name which You have given Me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled." But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the word the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This is the word of God. Again, Jesus is praying for us here. Not for the world in its rebellion, but for us who belong to Him. And this is a tender prayer as as Christ wraps His arms around those the Father has given Him and prays for them that they may be kept in faith, that they may be protected from a world that will hate them because they do belong to Him. Specifically, we understand that in that moment, Jesus is praying especially for those disciples who are standing there with Him, for Peter and James and John and the rest who have been with Him from the beginning. But as I reminded you last week, when we look down to verse 20, we find the encouraging news that this prayer He prayed for them also includes us who believe in Him today. Verse 20 says, I don't ask for those these only, speaking of those standing near, but for those also who believe in Me through their Word. That's you. That's me. If we're in Christ by faith. So, so once again, let's, let's listen in and understand what it is Jesus is asking the Father to do for us. The first thing we see here is that Jesus' prayer 
is that the Father would keep us in faith. Look at verse 11. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Keep them in your name, he prays. Keep them in faith. Keep them close to you. Jesus is praying for our our preservation, for our perseverance that come what may, nothing will be able to make us fall away from Him. Now, why is He praying that here and now? Well, notice again what He says. He says, I am no longer in this world. I'm coming to you, Father, but they're still going to be in this world. Remember when this is taking place as far as the whole Gospel story goes. The the cross is just a few hours away. And then Jesus will die, and then He will rise. Forty days later, He will return to the Father. So for all practical purposes, at this point, as He says, I am no longer in the world. But the disciples, and we, still are. And so how are we going to face the trouble and hostility of this world without Christ's physical presence with us? That's what the disciples need to know because they've not been there before. And so Jesus begins to pray in their hearing that God will keep them. Now notice some things about this prayer. First of all, notice to whom He prays in verse 11. Holy Father. He says. Now, if you're a Bible marker, that'd be a good one to mark because that is the only place in all of Scripture you find this title for God, Holy Father. That's important because that title brings together two awesome realities about God that seem, at first glance, to point in opposite directions. First of all, that He is holy, transcendent. Right, high above our fallenness, far removed from us and our sin. But second, also that He is near and accessible. A Father we can run to. So think about that again. Think about this juxtaposition. First of all, that God in His essential essence is holy. Holy, separated from all sin, separated from the darkness that infests this world through Adam's sin. God's holiness is His transcendent otherness. That that quality that sets Him high above not only all sin, but all creation itself. There is simply no one else like Him. No one in His category. No one in His class. He is separate. He is holy. He is perfect. Think of that uh, by His very nature. God's holiness puts a distance between us in our sin and Him in His perfection. Think of the temple uh, with that veil marking the separation point between this world of man's sin and God's presence in the holy of holies. And none can go there on penalty of death. God's holiness in the Old Testament is often pictured, in fact, as a kind of burning purity that would annihilate us if we came too near. (laughs) Remember the mountain where God was present and they were told if even an animal touches the mountain, it will die. 
I think of Isaiah's encounter in Isaiah 6, verse 1-5, to where Isaiah, the, the prophet who we would have thought a holy man, gets into the presence of God. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, that's the angelic creatures who had six wings. With two, they covered their face, shielding themselves from God's glory. With two, they covered their feet, a symbol of their creatureliness. And with two, they flew, their readiness to serve Him. And one called to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of those who called. The house was filled with smoke. And how does Isaiah respond? And I said, Woe is me! Woe is me! I'm lost. I'm disintegrating. I'm being torn apart because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's a terrifying thing to find yourself into the, in the presence of unvarnished holiness. God's holiness is beyond human comprehension. It is inaccessible. It is, it is beyond our reach. And yet according to Jesus in this prayer, this holy, fearsome God is also known as Father. Father. Now that's a word that draws us near and gives us access and says, come, you are welcome in my presence. And so at one and the same time, we have a God who is far above us, so far we cannot draw near, and yet, one who is so near at hand, we can call Him Father. And friend, listen, the the only way that is possible is through what Jesus came to do. Think of the moment of His death at Calvary and that great veil separating us from the holy places was ripped in two. And access given. On the cross, Christ bore the wrath of God's holiness against sin to bring us into the loving embrace of a Father's care. And now we are able to pray as He taught us in Matthew 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed. That is, holy is Your name. And so for us, He is a Father in His love and yet remains forever fearsome in His holiness. That's who Jesus is asking to keep us. And so second, notice the content of this prayer Jesus prays. That, the, that God, the Holy Father, would keep us in His name. Keep us! What does it mean to be kept? I like the way R.C. Sproul put this. He says, to be kept is to be protected, to be preserved. The great priestly blessing of the Old Testament began with these words, the Lord bless you and keep you. Number 624, those who are saved are kept, not just today, but forever, not by their own resources, but by the power of God Himself. And so to keep them means keep them on course with faith and faithfulness. Keep them at your side. Keep them from the enemy and his attempts to carry them away. Verse 15, protect them from his assaults. I mean, Christian, how often, how often have you felt the hand of the enemy grasping at you through temptation? 
and trouble, seeking to lure you away and and beat you into submission or separate you from Christ by whatever means He can. And don't forget that dark undertow that is also a part of this prayer that there is indeed an enemy that we must face. We'll see this next time. Verse 14, I've given them Your Word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that You take them out of the world but that You keep them from the evil one. And so the the prayer of the Son and thus the promise of the Father is that no matter what rage and guile and trickery of the enemy we must face, the hand of our Holy Father has taken hold of us to keep us. And notice, notice how Jesus says here, we will be kept. He says, keep them in your name. That's the best and most literal reading of these words here. Keep them in your name. God's name here is pictured as the place where we are kept. Proverbs 18 verse 10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. And so it's not just that He provides us with protection, it's that He provides us with Himself. That He wraps Himself around us, if you will, and holds onto us and keeps us and makes sure that we remain steadfast in Him. And we've already heard Jesus say this earlier in John. John 10, verse 28, those favorite words of so many, Jesus says, I give them, speaking of His sheep, whom the Father has given to Him, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand because My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of His hand. And so we're talking about a kind of security that you can count on because it's God's security. It is God Himself. Now listen, you understand that doesn't mean what some people call the kind of the once prayed, always saved kind of thing, as if merely saying the words of a prayer in a religious meeting somewhere means that now you can go out and continue your carnal life of sin and, 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 and that you're fine, you're safe, you're good, just go on about your business, do whatever you want, ignore Christ the rest of your life because you said those words. Well, no, that's, that's foolishness. The Bible's very clear about that. But what it does mean is that once He has indeed taken hold of you, He Himself will keep you walking with Him. He will bring you back when you stray. He will take you out of the enemy's hand. He will keep you from the enemy's hand. He will make sure that indeed you do persevere. Jude verse 24 says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Third thing we see in this 11th verse is that the goal of this prayer, the goal of this prayer is that we who have been brought to Christ would be united in our ongoing devotion to Christ. Notice the last of that verse. He says, Father, keep them in Your name which You have given Me that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus prays that we, His people, would be united to one another in our devotion to Him. Now what kind of unity are we talking about here? Well, it's the kind of unity that we see between the Father and the Son. This word, one, is in a form that does not mean one in 
uniformity, uh, as if there's only one thing sitting here. So uh, unless we're all members of the same church organization or the same denomination, we, we can't be unified. It's not that kind of thing. No, th- this is a word that pictures a unity of heart and mind and soul. The kind of God-given unity that already exists or at least should exist between all genuine believers who are following Christ. And, and so think of that. Think of that in terms of the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son are not the same person. They, along with the Holy Spirit, are different persons, but they are united in the Trinity as one God with a single purpose and mind and heart and will. And so that unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is seen as they act together for God's glory and for our salvation. In the same way, We, though a diverse people with different backgrounds and different nationalities and different racial heritages and different denominations even, if we do indeed belong to Christ, we must be unified in our goal and purpose of knowing Him and making Him known. We keep that at the center. And yeah, clearly there's a lot of work to be done there in this fractured culture in which we live. But but one brother said it this way, and I thought this was good. He said, It is the divine unity of love that is referred to. All wills bowing in the same direction. All affections burning with the same flame. All aims directed toward the same end. One blessed harmony of love for Christ. And that unity is hard to see sometimes. And so we ought to pray for it and we ought to work for it and we ought to to put Christ at the center as, as He draws us together. But that unity exists already between Christ's true people. We'll come back to this one later because it will come back up in this prayer. But now let's move on to the next thing we see here in verse 12. Second, in verse 12 we see this. We see Jesus' role as the protector of His people. Look at verse 12. He says, While I was with them, I kept them in Your name, which You have given Me. I have guarded them, and no one, not one of them, has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Now Jesus is looking back over the last two and a half to three years, or three and a half or so years uh, of earthly ministry as He has been physically present with these disciples. And He says, you know, as long as He was present with them day to day, He kept them in their faith. He protected them from the enemy. And the way he says it here uh, emphasizes his personal agency. He himself did this. And so the only reason Peter and James and John have made it this far is because Jesus has kept them this far. And the only reason Satan has not snatched them away is because with Jesus present, he didn't have a chance. Is that true? I mean, just imagine Satan and his demons skulking around as they surely were, looking for a way to lure Peter away. Satan whispers to one of the demons, Boy, I'd like to get hold of that one. But wait a minute, Jesus is standing right there, and he'll wipe us out. I think of that scene where Satan makes a play for Peter. Do you remember it? Luke 22. 31-32, to 32, 
Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. He wants to tear you to shreds. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now listen to that. Is there any doubt in Jesus' mind at that point? Any doubt whatsoever that Peter's going to make it? Right? That, that, that Peter is going to come through? That, it, that it's going to work out? Right? And there's no doubt at all at this point. Yeah, Peter's going to be tested and it's going to be hard, but he's going to come through. How do we know that? Because Jesus has prayed for him and is guarding him. Friend, if you are truly His by faith, Jesus has prayed for you and He is guarding you. The only reason you've made it this far is because Jesus has seen to it that you've been kept this far. And the only reason Satan hasn't snatched you away is because Jesus won't let him. Yes! He says that in two ways here that are meant to give His disciples and us confidence that He will not fail at this. First of all, He says, I have kept them in Your name. The name which you have given me. Now notice it's a virtual repeat of what he asks the Father to do back in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. And now here in verse 12, he says, I kept them in your name which you have given me. So what is the power we see at work here? The power that's already at work and the power Jesus is praying for. What is the power that kept them and is keeping us? It is God's own name. Remember from last week, God's name refers to His person. It refers to His character. It is a, it is a revelation of who He is uh, in all of His glory, and all of His power. And the point of that is, all God is, is deployed for our keeping. Again, John 10.29, My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. But then notice this little bit. Jesus says, that name which you have given me. Meaning what? Well, it means that Jesus Himself, God the Son, bears this almighty name with all of its power and all of its glory for us. Philippians 2, 9-11, remember this, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, speaking of Jesus, bestowing on Him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Christ Himself bears the power of this almighty name and has pledged it for the keeping of His disciples. If you are His disciple, that means He has pledged it for keeping you. And second, He says, notice, I have guarded them and not one was lost. This word guarded pictures the deployment of of heavily armed soldiers charged with protecting someone. And here Jesus says He Himself is that sentinel, that that guard standing watch over His people's souls. And again, we imagine Satan drawing near with evil intent to harass and destroy one of Christ's elect. And again, he can do nothing that Christ does not permit him to do. Friend, take that to heart. So Jesus says, as a result of my keeping, not one of them was lost. Not one. 
except. Verse 12, except the son of destruction that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. So, wait, there was one exception. One of them was lost. How does that not shake our confidence? I mean, if Jesus lost the handle on Judas, and that's clearly who He's talking about, maybe He'll lose the handle on me. If He could lose, if He couldn't keep Him, maybe He won't be able to keep me. I mean, should I be concerned? Should, should you be concerned? Well, let me answer that a couple of ways. First of all, let's be really clear. Jesus did not lose the handle on Judas. Because Judas, though numbered outwardly among the disciples for a time, was never a believer, was never converted, was never his. Now you've been in John with me. We've been reading along and we've been hearing hints of that dropped by John all along, going back at least to John 6, verse 70, when Jesus said, Did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And then it says, He spoke this of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas is the poster child for the make-believer, the church member whose body is in the building on a Sunday, but his heart, his heart is far from him. Her life remains her own. She doesn't follow Him or love Him or do what He says. And so it is with Judas. And so we notice what Jesus says about him here. He says, I hadn't lost a single one of those who are mine, those who are in my safekeeping. I hadn't lost a single one except the son of destruction that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Two things we see about Judas here. First, we see that Judas is the son of destruction. It's actually a play on words here in this verse because the word earlier, lost, I haven't lost one, and the word destruction as in son of destruction, they're actually the same word in the Greek. So no one was destroyed except the son of destruction. No one was lost except the son of lostness. The point being, this is Judas's character. This has always been Judas' character. This is who he is and who he has been from the beginning. There never was a time that he belonged to Christ. He had other motives for following Jesus, other loves that, that, that kept him there for a time. But destruction was and is his nature. Destruction indeed was his destiny because every time we see this little word, Apollyon, destruction used in the New Testament, it's always pointing to eternal destruction. So Judas, the son of eternal destruction, we're told in his betrayal, fulfills Scripture. Jesus said that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Do you understand God was not caught off guard by this? Jesus was not surprised to find this traitor in his midst. The fact was set in stone long before Judas was born and began to choose his course of action. Scripture had to be fulfilled. And the Scripture Jesus probably has in mind is Psalm 41.9, which He quoted the night Judas defected and went off into the night. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate his, my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And so we, we bump in here into one of those mysteries in Scripture that can really trouble us if we're not willing to let God have the last word. That this mystery that exists between God's absolute sovereignty over all things and man's personal responsibility. 
So which one of those two do we see at play here? Does Judas betray Christ and fall away to destruction because he chose to do so? Or because God destined him to do so? The answer to that question is yes. God determined that Judas would betray Christ and when the time came, Judas freely chose to betray Christ. God did not force him. He didn't have to force him. God's sovereignty works in such a way that what God sovereignly determines from eternity, man will freely choose to do in time. And yes, it is a mystery. I don't understand fully how it works. It makes my head hurt, but I believe it because it is all through Scripture. Just two quick examples. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. The church is praying as persecution begins to really heat up and they look back at the death of Jesus and in their prayer they say to the Father, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They all came together, plotted to kill Jesus. And verse 28 they say, What did they do? They did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Nobody forced Pilate, nobody forced Herod to be evil or the Gentile or the soldiers or the people of Israel, the Sanhedrin. Nobody said, you're you're having to do this. But God predestined it would happen and when the time came, they freely did so. Genesis chapter 50, Joseph's brothers are afraid of him because they sold him into slavery when he was a young man. And now here he is in total absolute authority over them and they're terrified that he's going to take revenge. And Joseph responds, don't be afraid. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You did evil. It was wrong. You chose this evil against me. You did exactly what you wanted to do. Sold me into slavery out of envy. And the whole time you did exactly what God meant for you to do to bring about this good result. God's sovereignty overrules the actions and intentions of men, including those of Judas, in such a way that, one, they end up doing exactly what they wanted to do and are responsible for their sin. And yet, number two, they do exactly what God determined they would do in the unfolding of His plan. And of course, in salvation, there's an extra bit there because there's an undeserved grace that turns our evil hearts and brings us to salvation. And yes, it is a mystery beyond my puny mind's ability to comprehend, but it is also my hope. It is my hope because it means God really is in control and nothing, no nothing can disrupt His good and sovereign plan for our salvation. If you're in doubt of that, read Romans 8 this afternoon. But then there's one third thing we want to look at in this prayer before we close, and that is this, Jesus' prayer here, Jesus' prayer that He's praying is meant to give us joy, us believers, it's meant to give us joy as we listen and believe. Listen to verse 13. But now, praying to the Father, He says, but now I am coming to you. These things I speak in the world that they, my disciples He means, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus says, Father, it's time. I'm coming home soon. I'll I'll be there really quickly. It's as if the train is in the station and the final boarding call has been announced. 
So I won't be here long. But before I leave, Jesus says, I want to make sure my disciples hear me say these words. Did you notice that? It's really clear. I'm saying these things now while I'm still with them in this world. So, so Jesus knows He's being overheard. It's like one of those shows where uh, the character turns and breaks the third wall, as they call it, and looks right into the camera and addresses the audience. Jesus is addressing us directly here. Jesus knows the disciples are listening in. And as Lord of heaven and earth and all time, He knows that you and I would be listening in one day by the means of the Word also. And so He tips His hand here to those of us who are listening and reading. And He says, I am praying out loud like this so they can hear what I say and do what? Verse 13, that they may have My joy fulfilled in themselves. I want my prayer and its promise to be to, to, to fill them with the fullness of my joy. And it's, it's emphatic. My joy. My own joy. I want to be filling them. I, I, I want what they hear me say to give them such confidence in me that they will rejoice forever. So that no matter what happens, no, no matter how the world rails against them and hates them and persecutes them, uh, that, that no matter what's going on, they will know without a doubt that I've got them and you've got them and, and we're not going to let them go or let Satan have them. We are going to keep them faithful all the way to the end. Philippians 1.9 He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. And Paul says, I'm confident of this. And that's what I want you to see here, dear Christian. Jesus wants you to know this. He wants you to believe it and bank on it and count on it every day. He wants you to wake up in the morning and say, whatever happens today, Jesus is keeping me. Well, I'd recommend that one to you. Put it on your phone. Put a little, little, little reminder, right? First thing in the morning as a Christian, whatever happens today, Jesus is keeping me. Whatever I may face, my Father has me securely in hand. So no matter what, I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to press close to Him. I'm going to keep hold of His promise because I believe He will keep hold of me. And that thought, that confidence, notice, is there to give you His joy. In fact... It will keep giving you His joy because it's in what is called the present tense continuous form. That they may keep having My joy filling them up, strengthening them, securing them, upholding them. Dear Christian, that's what you are being called to this morning. The continuing joy of trusting in Christ. Not in your own strength and power, but trusting in His strength and power. His promise and power to keep you and make you holy as He is holy. We'll look at that one in two weeks. His determination to do for you and in you all that He has promised in Christ, and He will, so that you can rest your life and your whole future and the whole of who you are Completely in Him. 
That's the promise and assurance that is meant to come to us through this prayer Jesus prays and which we now receive by faith. Is it your hope? Is it your confidence? Let it be this morning. Father, again, we are given the we are given the privilege of listening in to the Son of God's prayer purposefully. It's not an accident this was written down. It's not just, this just happens to be what's in the words here, but Jesus intended for us to hear this and to take heart as believers. Father, if we're not trusting You, then none of this applies to us, but if we will trust You, if we'll turn from our sin and rest in Christ, if we will, if we will be found among Your disciples who have received Your Word, who believe the promise of the Gospel, we have this confidence, Holy Father, that You will keep us in Your name, which You have given Christ, and that we will be one in this faith, that we will be guarded, we will be protected, and we will have Your joy in us. Father, grant this to every, every anxious, willing heart that looks to You by faith. Grant, grant this growing confidence for Christ's sake. Amen.